0: Lord, we do thank you for the glory of the cross. It has saved us from our sins. It has caused us to believe the gospel is the power of God to those who will believe. I pray that you would be with Bob now as he brings the message. Open our ears to the truth that you would have us know and change us through it into the image of your son. Amen. Well, I'd ask you this morning to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be considering where are all these people going? Oh. Um, did we miss something here? Oh, okay. All right. I thought maybe we we're having a deep vacation Bible school or something. But uh, usually it's after the second song, right? Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And we'll be considering verses 16 and 17, but I'd like to begin by reading in verse 15 where Paul is talking to the Romans and he says, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Sounds interesting. It sounds like the gospel had already been preached there. But, but then he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes to the Jew first and then to the Greek, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man, or the righteous, shall live by faith. Two incredible verses, and they are just packed with gospel. Now Paul, after introducing himself and stating his desire to come to Rome and be a blessing and be blessed by the Roman believers and Impart to them some spiritual gift to help establish them and to be part of their lives and to be encouraged by one another's faith now turns completely to the main issue at hand and that being the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And in these two verses he states the entire thesis of the book of Romans. And it reveals he revels in the most life-transforming truth that God has ever set before the eyes of men. The gospel most powerful truth there is in this world. And in these two verses, he states what the gospel is all about. And we're going to look at that. Because to understand and positively respond to the truth of the gospel is to have one's life and eternity completely altered. The gospel transforms a person to begin with from life to death, or from, li- from death to life. From being unrighteous in God's eyes to being righteous, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, from, from being destined for hell to being destined to heaven, from sinners to saints, from being a slave to sin to being a son or daughter of God freed from sin, from being an idolatrous worldling to being an heir of God and joint heir with Jesus Christ. You know, I could go on and on just probably for the next hour about the transformation that takes place, the moment of salvation, the change that takes as you become a new creation. As we read earlier, the old things pass away, new things come, and uh, it's just one of the most powerful things you can ever meditate on. It will change your life. Even as a Christian, if you take the time to meditate on the transformation, the change, it took place the moment you receive Christ as your Savior, because that's part and parcel of the gospel. And I could go on and on as I said, but the gospel, as it states here, is the power of God for salvation and all that that entails, and all its promises and privileges. And not only is it good news in this sinful, dying world, but it's the greatest news God has ever placed into the hands of men. The interesting thing is, if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has placed the gospel in your hands. It's one of the things we need to know. We need to know it backwards, forward, upside down. We need to be able to give it at the drop of a hat. We need to know it so well that it transforms the way we live and the way we talk with people even. That's the power of the gospel. It's the greatest truth of all. And Paul, for the entire book of Romans, will delineate that for us. And by the time we're through with the book of Romans, we will be what I call gospel-saturated. That's probably the best thing you can be saturated with. <laughs> so let's, uh, as we go through this, let's just understand that we need to understand, we need to know, we need to internalize the gospel in a in a real way that it really motivates, changes, transforms our lives. Now as we look at these two verses in the gospel, I want us to see basically three things. Number one, that the gospel is nothing to be ashamed of. Secondly, that it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, verse 16. And then finally, thirdly, the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God in verse 17. Now, Paul begins by saying, after stating his desire to preach the gospel in Rome in verse 15, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It almost sounds like kind of a negative way to present a very positive thing. And there's a reason for this, because keep in mind, Rome at this time is the capital of the pagan empire. They ruled the then known world. Uh, Furthermore, it was the heart and enthronement of emperor worship. Not to worship the emperor. who They claimed to be gods. They claimed to be immortal. They claimed to be worthy of worship. Uh, was usually a death penalty, and oftentimes Christians, because they could not proclaim Caesar as Lord, because they can only say Jesus is Lord, would actually be killed for not proclaiming the emperor as Lord. Keep that in mind. So he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, even in Rome. I'm willing to die for the gospel. I'm willing to die for the sake of the spread of the gospel, even in the Roman Empire. Emperor worship was the PC religion of the day, just as I'm not sure what is the PC religion of the day today. I think it's atheism. But add to that, Rome was the intellectual, philosophical, and political hub of human pride, and you can understand why Paul would begin to make the main thesis of his gospel with the statement, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because the world can be very intimidating, can it? But not so for Paul. Occasionally he was silenced because of persecution on occasion. Once in Corinth he was kind of sketchy about things. But for the most part, Paul never backed down on the presentation of the gospel, no matter where he was. And he proved that throughout his lifetime, didn't he? He was thrown into the inner stocks in Philippi, and they were singing praises, and God sent an earthquake and liberated them, and the Philippian jailer became a believer in Christ. Uh, They were run out of town in Thessalonica, smuggled out of Damascus, let down from the outer wall in a basket, uh, smuggled out of Berea, mocked in Athens as he proclaimed the resurrection. They thought he was a vain babbler in the philosophical center of the pagan world, and and uh, considered a fool at Corinth because he wasn't erudite and, and philosophical in his presentation of the gospel. He preached Christ and him crucified, and that was it. He wasn't with them in persuasive words of wisdom, which the Corinthians, even the Corinthian Christians, were used to. And, and he was thought to be a blasphemer and a lawbreaker in Jerusalem, left for dead at Lystra, stoned at Stoned because he wouldn't allow them to worship him. He and Barnabas just ran out in the crowd and said, "We're not Zeus and Hermes," and you know, and they weren't willing to accept that, so they stoned them. Him in particular, because Paul was the main speaker. Five times he received thirty-nine lashes from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. It tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven in prison times without number, but still not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs or uh, Jesus Freaks, Uh, these people who were persecuted, I mean, literally for years in prison, beaten and tortured, and still they wouldn't recant the gospel. They wouldn't recant Jesus as Lord. That was Paul. In fact, it was for the spread of the gospel that all these things happened to him. How do you stop persecution? Just shut your mouth. (laughs) Don't say anything. Don't let anybody know you're a believer. Be a All Christian. Only your hairdresser knows for sure. And I dated myself with that statement. (laughs) In fact, you know, uh, as I thought and prayed about this this week, uh, and I looked at Paul's life, I thought, what does it take to shut me down? What does it take to shut me up? What does it take to shut you up as far as Christ is concerned? A comment, a word, a look, a relative, a coworker, a spouse, a Jehovah's Witness, a situation, the wrong company? Sometimes it's that big yellow streak that goes down her back. In fact, I had to think have I ever suffered any real persecution for the gospel? You know, we live in a country where you can share the gospel anywhere if you're willing to pay the consequence, and that's true around the world. And here we pay very little consequence, and what keeps us from sharing the gospel? You know, do I have a hard time letting the cat out of the bag, so to speak? How bad do I feel like I need to be accepted and fit into this world? Is it at the expense of being ashamed of the gospel and my testimony for Christ, what is it that would keep me silent when the opportunity arises? But You see, no amount of argument or criticism or ridicule or tradition or rejection could silence the Apostle Paul about the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For I am, not, I am under compulsion, for woe to me if I preach not the gospel. That was his attitude. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. Because you knew what was at stake, the eternal destiny of men and women's lives. Because we see, secondly, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As Pastor Craig said to us last week, that we have a debt, not to God, but we have a debt to our fellow man to tell them what the cure for this world is. Look at our world, you know, we complain and we look at it and we we see it's going downhill at warp speed. I mean, not just our country, but the world. This is a worldwide thing. This is like in the days of Noah. But you see, we have the cure for the world's cancer. We We have the cure for what's wrong with the world, and it's sin. And Christ came to die for our sins. He came to deliver us from our political views, our uh, liberalism, our conservatism, capitalism, socialism. Did he come to deliver us from all those? No, he came to deliver us from our sins. That's the problem. Man will die in his sin. The wages of sin is death. Man is judged for his sin in Revelation 20. It is the second death. Dies once physically dies another time spiritually for all eternity. That's an awful, awful thing to consider. We have a debt to take what we have been given by God, the cure to man's eternal problems, and give it to them. That's the joy of being a Christian. That's the joy of Paul getting run out of town and putting the stocks and all the other things that happened to him. And he says that he did it with great joy. Why? Because he was affecting, altering people's eternity. Only the gospel alters and changes the eternal destiny of mankind. Not their political views, not their philosophical views, not their spiritual views or evolutionary views or scientific views, but the gospel. It's the gospel message that saves. You know, the other day they had a march up on 41. I don't know if any of you saw it, but it was kind of interesting. It was Save Mother Earth. I thought, well, you know, Mother Earth is doomed. It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Mother Earth is going down if you read the Bible correctly. But, you know, it's worth being conscientious and, and all those things and a, a true environmentalist, not just trying to control other people, but, you know, taking care of business, you know, mowing your lawn and taking care of the trees and blah, blah. Um, but we don't need to save Mother Earth. God is in control of that. God created the Earth. I won't say Mother Earth, that makes me ill, but God created the earth, didn't he? And all that's in it, and it will be around as long as he wants it to be around. It's going to end in fire, 2 Peter tells us, the book of Revelation tells us. But, take care of business now, but that's not what saves. I saw one placard that said, believe the scientists. No, believe Jesus Christ believe the gospel, believe the word of God, and you will come up with a solution if enough people did believe it. But as we kick God to the curb, as we're going to see in Revelation chapter or uh, Romans chapter 1, things just get progressively worse and worse and worse, because the judgment on sin is greater sin. And we'll see that in a while. But That's not what saves. The message of the gospel is what saves. The wisdom of man doesn't save. The religions that man have invented do not save. Christ died and rose again on our behalf three days later. That's the power of the gospel. Um, You know, rather than give you my own thoughts and the thoughts of another man on this issue, of the gospel being the power of God for salvation. I want us to look at what the Apostle Paul had to say. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 18. Very powerful passage. love to hear that rustle of pages. But a very powerful passage. And I want to look down through chapter 2 verse 5 because he talks about the power of God. The power of God to save. And he talks about the the faith that saves. And he says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who reject the the gospel, it's, it's a joke. It's just foolishness. It's like, why do you believe that stuff? Why do you believe in something you can't see? You know, well, gosh, what I can't see has changed my life, but I can see the word of God, and it tells me that uh, the Holy Spirit is in the process of transforming my life and changing me into the man of God that he wants me to be. But I can't see it. I can experience it. Not it, but I experience the the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I can experience the power of God in my life. But to the unregenerate man or woman, it's foolishness. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God. It says, but to the one who is being saved, it is what? The power of God. We understand that, those of us that know Christ. We understand the power of God has been demonstrated in our life. And, and then he goes on, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. You know, we're not saved by how clever we are, how worldly wise we are. He says, and where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Very foolish message we preach to those who won't believe, who choose not to believe. It says, for indeed Jews ask for signs, and if you get stuck on signs, you always need one more, one greater, you know, one beyond whatever sign you saw in the first place. And uh, the Greeks searched for wisdom. You could never love yourself enough, or talk about yourself enough, or be enamored with your own wisdom enough. And that was the Greek. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles' foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Keep in mind, whatever we're talking about when we talk about God, we're talking about that which is infinitely wise, infinitely strong. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Most gladly, therefore, I'll glory in my afflictions rather than what I think in my own wisdom is strength. Then he says, consider your call, folks, uh, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You know, as I look at all of us, I concur with that. any kings here now now think about that for a moment you should probably answer yes because we're the son of the king we're the heir of god joint heirs with christ but anyway we won't go into that but consider your calling when you were called you were uh, not much according to the flesh not much according to your strength not very noble But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. We'll talk about that as we study Romans. The things which are not so that he might nullify the things which are so that no man may boast before God. There will be nobody before God going, oh, you know, I am so noble. That's why I should get into heaven. I am so strong. You should have seen me lift weights. I am so strong. I am so wise. Oh, I'm wonderful. That's why you should let me into heaven, God. Sounds ridiculous when I put it like that, doesn't it? But by his doing, God did it. He says, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification or salvation and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord you know and we stand before God on that day we're going to just go you know God the only reason I'm here is because you are so loving and merciful and gracious and you brought me from death to life You brought me from unrighteousness to righteousness. You brought me from the pit I was in to walk on two legs in this world and see it through your eyes. That's why Paul says this, beginning in verse 2, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, although he could have come with superiority of speech. Paul was very erudite. He was very intellectual. He was incredible, had an incredible mind, and he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, proclaiming you the testimony of God, he says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what's that message? Well, to the Greek, it's foolishness. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. But that's his message. He says, "For, for I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, And my message and my preaching were not in the persuasive words of wisdom, which they would have expected, even the Christians in Corinth, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. What power? Well, the power of God, because he says in verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What would you rather have, a faith that rests on the wisdom of men, which changes about every year, or on the power of God, which is eternal. You see, beloved, it's not whether the world considers the message of the gospel to be worldly wise and erudite. It's not whether the the religious consider the message of the gospel to be legal and moral enough. The issue is whether the message of the gospel demonstrates the power of God to save. That's the point, to save those who believe. That's all that matters. In the final analysis, can the power of God save me? Because I want to be saved. I want to live for eternity. I want to go to heaven. Can the power of God save me? As Romans 1, 4 says, Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Did he conquer sin and death on the cross, rising three days later, or didn't he? Get that settled in your own mind. Did he rise from the dead or didn't he? Because if he didn't rise from the dead, he's not worth believing a word he said because he was a liar. If he did rise from the dead, then everything he says is validated because no one has ever done that without dying again. You know, they resuscitate people just to die him again somehow. But Christ was ascended on the 40th day into heaven, bodily, conquered sin and death on our behalf. And if he did all that, did he make a way for me? I love Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. I'm going to die sooner or later unless the rapture occurs praying for that fervently. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He not only conquered sin and death, but he made a way for me also. That's what matters. That's foolishness to the world because somehow it just doesn't seem wise to think somebody could rise from the dead. It doesn't seem wise that somebody could conquer sin in this sin-cursed world, but he did and he made a way for me. That's where I get in on the the good stuff. You know, cuz if he didn't if he just did it and yeah, we worship this this guy who rose from the dead but we don't know if we're going or not, that's no good. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, free gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We need to keep that in mind. That's why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto eternal life to all who believe. Jesus saves. That was his purpose in coming, to save us from our sin. Uh, Jesus said it right in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Peter re- repeated that in Acts 4, 4, 12 when he said, There is no other name unto heaven by which it is appointed, appointed by God that men be saved. It's only in the name of Jesus. Only God in Christ, only the message of the gospel saves. Only the omnipotent God demonstrating his power over life and death at the cross and the resurrection can save eternally from sin and death, no matter how the world may malign and ridicule that message. Don't ever be ashamed of that message. We have a debt no matter whether men want to believe it or not, to give it to them, because it's the only solution to their eternal problem, and that eternal problem is their sin, which will damn them for all eternity if they do not turn from it, and repent and turn to Christ. You know, when I first got saved, I used to love to drive through L.A. and Jay Vern, Vernon McGee, bless his heart, he's still on the radio. But uh, how long has he been gone? Long time. But anyway, he's still on the radio. You can hear him. Uh, They just had this huge church called Church of the Open Door down in L.A., and you drive by on the freeway, and they had this huge sign on the top that says, Jesus saves. And I thought, what a simple message. What an awesome message for the world to see, to hear, Jesus saves. That's why He came. That's who He is. He is the Savior. Therefore, He saves. And that message is for everyone who believes, it says, or puts their faith and puts their trust in the finished work of Christ. as Hebrews 10, 12 says, But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And what is that being the right hand of power or the Right hand of the power that saves. God saves. God saves through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 14 goes on to say, For by one offering is perfected for all time those who die. Being, for all time those who are being sanctified or being saved. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Christ paid it all. That's why on the cross, as he was dying, he said, te telestai, it is finished. No longer a sacrifice for sin. He is the one and only Savior of mankind. And that's our message. Jesus saves. You see, our Lord is a Savior, the Savior. To the Jew first, the Messiah came to to them first. The message of the gospel came to them first. That's history. But then it came to the to the Greek, to the barbarian, to the Gentile. It's a whosoever gospel. It's a whosoever will believe. We'll talk about election and all that later being chosen, but it's a whosoever gospel. We don't know who's chosen. Spurgeon was asked one time, why do you believe in election? And he said, so on and so forth. And, and he says, well, if you'll pull up their the back of their shirt and it says the elect, then I'll worry about who hears it. Don't worry about who's elect and who's chosen. Just preach the gospel. Just tell people the gospel. That's not our deal. That's God's deal. God being omniscient knows everything from the beginning to end, so, but we don't. So tell everybody you possibly can get your lips on the gospel, right? The gospel is God's good news to the world. It went to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, and it tells us a partial hardening has happened to Israel. In fact, it talks about the times we live in being the times of the Gentiles, and Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 11 that after the times of the Gentiles, I believe when the Gentile church is raptured, then God again turns to Israel and it says, thus all of Israel will be saved. Be a glorious day. The gospel is God's good news to the world. So we see why Paul was ready to preach the gospel in Rome. He was not ashamed of it in any context, any company. Then he told us why he was not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to everyone who believes, it's the only message that saves. And lastly, he tells us why it's the power of God unto salvation. He says, because therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Look at verse 17, back in Romans chapter 1. He says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, there are many interpretations of this verse, and they're all good to a certain extent, but what is Paul ultimately driving at when he states that in the gospel, the righteousness of God or God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith? Is he talking about different levels of faith? Is he talking about uh, by faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone? Is he saying the righteousness of God is by faith from beginning to end? What's he saying here? Well, I think it's some, a little bit of all of those things. But again, I believe the best interpreter of Paul is Paul himself. You know, the wonderful thing about going through an epistle by Paul is he wrote so many epistles. And you can actually interpret the epistles that you're in by other epistles that he wrote, which are the mind of the Spirit also. And he, you know, uh, explains what he's writing maybe here in uh, mini form, in maxi form, other places. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3, all the way on the next page, and verse 21, where it talks about the righteousness of God, mentions it four times, and then three times he mentions by faith or redemption that's in Christ. He says, now apart from the law the righteousness of God, or God's righteousness, has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. And he says, "Even the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Being justified as a gift, again there's a, a concept, the gift. Not something we earn or deserve. Gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's the second time he mentions that. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Then he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or a satisfaction for our sin in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just. Through Christ, his justice was satisfied. His holiness, his justice, his wrath was all satisfied at the cross. And the justifier. Thank God those few words are there. And the justifier, his love and his mercy and his grace was present at the cross also. Because it was Christ dying, taking on the wrath of God, dying for our sins that he might offer to us the free gift of eternal life. And he says says, uh, that he would be the just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the third time he mentions faith. In Jesus, faith to faith. You see, the righteousness of God has been forever revealed in the person and work of Christ. We read this morning, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. We call this the doctrine of imputation, that we might become the righteousness of what? Of God in him. In Christ, you share God's righteousness. That's a, that's, that, that is a, it'll explode your mind if you think about it too much. You share God's righteousness in Christ. That's how God views you now as being righteous before him. He views you as having his very own righteousness because your sin was imputed to Christ's account. His righteousness was imputed to our account, which was sin and it was covered by His blood. The wrath of God was satisfied. He became the propitiation, the satisfaction for the Father's hatred of sin. It's in Christ that the righteousness of God is revealed. In fact, He is the righteousness of God to men. We are declared righteous in Christ by the Father through faith And then we live for the righteous one by faith, thereby declaring the righteous one by both word and deed. I love Colossians 1.27 when it declares the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you the hope of glory. His righteousness living in and through you because His person indwells you. You see, we're saved by faith as a gift of the grace of our Savior. Then empowered by faith to live to the one who has so gloriously saved us, faith to faith. Seems so simple, doesn't it? Saved eternally by faith as a gift of God's grace. For by grace are you save through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. And then living our lives by faith to the glory of God out of gratitude and thanksgiving for the one who has done, literally done it all for us. Ephesians 2.10, we are his masterpieces. We are his workmanship. Okay, that's the word I'm searching for. We are his workmanship, which literally means we are his masterpieces, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Then it goes on to say, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's all by faith. We believe by faith, we live by faith, we serve God by faith. It's all by faith in Him, and through it all, His righteousness is revealed to the world. So, that's the thesis of the book of Romans. That's the theme of the book of Romans. And it's captured in two verses, incredible to think about, that Paul could be saying so much in so little a time, in so little a space. And it's all the gospel as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God. We talk about a sinless life kind of glibly. But keep in mind, the righteousness of God was revealed by his entire existence here on earth. Everything he did was perfect. Everything he did displayed the righteousness of God, leading up to the cross, to the resurrection, and then to the birth of the church. Now, as we close, I wanted each of us to ask ourselves, first of all, is that the gospel that I believe? Or do I have a gospel that's kind of squidgy at the edges? Uh, you know, yeah, Jesus is good, but, you know, every pathway leads to God, and, and everybody's going to make it and uh, because God is love, that kind of thing. No, God is also holiness, wrath, judgment, all kinds of things that we don't like to even talk about today because they're not PC. Is that the gospel you believe? Can you articulate it to someone else? Can I explain it so someone else could understand it? Or do I lack understanding? Am I ashamed and fearful because of that? Do I steer away from people and situations where my lack of understanding might be exposed? Well, if you answered negatively to any of those questions, let me just say this. Great. Great. Because the book of Romans is for you. Because I'm holding back right now just on all this stuff that's in here. I mean, we could talk for hours on those two verses just by going through the book of Romans. But the book of Romans is for you. Because by the time we are through this study, your blood will be bibbling with the gospel. That's a guarantee. You will know it. And understand the gospel upside down backwards and forwards and no longer be ashamed and we will all experience the power of God in and through our lives as we spread the gospel but we got to know it first we got to know it so well that you can give it at the drop of a hat you know I think of Paul at the Areopagus he's with all these erudite philosophers and and they hear what he says and said some believed and some kind of laughed and went away. But that's the reaction of the world. That doesn't matter. Could you, if you were at the Areopagus, give a defense of the hope that's in you? That's the point. The book of Romans is for you, whether you can or not. And and, uh, we'll no longer be ashamed and we will all experience the power of God in and through our lives as we revel in the revelation of the righteousness of God revealed to us in his Son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because Christ himself is the good news. Christ is the gospel, and we need to know him. We claim to worship him. We claim to read about him. We need to know him, and we need to know his power both in and through our lives, and that is demonstrated, revealed through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, thank you for the gospel, thank you that it is the power of God unto salvation, it is the power that saves, it it is the revelation of the wonder of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is so powerful that it transforms men from death to life, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from sinner to saint, from, from uh, being held in this world of darkness, to being transferred to the kingdom of your beloved Son. It, it buys us out of the slave market of sin. Just an incredible, incredible message, Lord. May we know it. May we revel in it. May we rejoice in it. May we, may we see it as the most important thing that you've entrusted with us, as you've entrusted the word of God to us. For We pray in Christ's name.